One of the great conversations in the Gospel of John is this in John chapter 4, and because it's a fairly long narrative, I'm not going to read it up front, we're just going to walk through it this morning. But we learn about Jesus communicating to a woman in an amazing way, and it shows us also some insight in how to communicate the good news of Christ. We've been called as Christians to bear witness to the gospel, to communicate the good news of Christ. And in this passage, there's so many, uh, so many things here, but I want to kind of focus around the theme of how to communicate the good news. And that's the title of this morning's message of how to communicate the good news of Jesus. A lot of people know a lot about church. They know a lot of, you know, the Bible and different things. But many times people even who have been in church a long time, do not have an understanding of what the gospel, what the good news is all about. Uh, many are still confused about how many, uh, if God will outweigh my good works with my bad, you know, the bad things, and hopefully it'll all come out even. They don't really understand what uh, is communicated by what is we call the good news. And that's what gospel means. Gospel means good news. Now, you wouldn't know that necessarily by being around some Christians, that it is good news, right? It is good news, all right? And we Christians sometimes need to let that show on our face. But look with me how this begins in John chapter 4. And remember, this is coming off the heels of John chapter 3, where Jesus has had a, communic- uh, a conversation with Nicodemus. So it begins in verse 1 of John 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees, they are the uh, group of uh, religious Jewish teachers, they're very prominent. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's John the baptizer, not the apostle John, uh, even though it says, and you see this in parentheses, that's kind of a note that the Apostle John put in there, even though Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, uh, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Why? Because one of the things the Pharisees were always concerned about was their power, their authority. And so they heard that now this Jesus movement is getting more followers than this John the Baptist movement. And remember, Jesus is on a divine time plan, right? And, uh, and he will not be forced to, uh, to uh, Calvary, the cross, until he says it is time, until he determines the time. So in order to continue the ministry, it says he left Galilee. But I want you to look at verse 4 before we begin this morning, and it sets us up. Notice the phrase where it says that he had to pass through Samaria. I would circle in my Bible if you have it or whatever, similar, he had, he must go through Samaria. Now, it's important to kind of make a few notes and and give you a little history, okay? Did you hear my voice crack? A little history, all right? (laughs) Who was I talking to this week about that? Um, Shelby, I think, and Brian, we're talking about when they hear that, they always laugh. But, uh, so there you go. Uh, I want to give you a little insight because you can read through it and miss the significance of what is being said there in just verse 4 when it says he had to pass through Samaria. And it's helpful to make this understatement is that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. That is the understatement of the year. They hated each other. There was racial animosity on both sides, and they just could not stand each other. And the root of it went back about 500 or 600 years, little Old Testament history. Do you remember that when Israel, uh, they were split into a north and south kingdom after Solomon, all right? There was a civil war, civil uh, separation, and you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was attacked by the big superpower of the day called Assyria. And Assyria uh, plundered the northern part of the kingdom and took a lot of people from Israel that lived in that northern part back to Assyria to be slaves and workers and whatnot. But there were still a lot of Jews living 
uh, they didn't get deported. Years later, Babylon, they, they were the big world power, and they came and destroyed Jerusalem and took captives. That's where, uh, again, they took uh, modern-day Babylon as Iraq, and they took uh, slaves and people back to Babylon and uh, in order to indoctrinate them and into the languages. You remember the three Hebrew children in Daniel? They were part of that deportation. Uh, what they would do is they'd take them back, get them trained in the ways of Babylon, and then send them back to their ethnic countries. And their, their ethnicity might be Jewish, but their brains thought Babylonian. And that was a good strategy to, call, the way the, the, to colonize these nations. Well, fast forward a little bit. Remember the story about Ezra and Nehemiah wanted to, Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, they were burdened about the walls, the city of Jerusalem that was not being rebuilt, and uh, King Cyrus allowed uh, a group to go back to Israel, go back to Jerusalem, and to help rebuild the temple to worship, all right? And when they went back, and you read about this in Nehemiah and Ezra, the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, you remember in Nehemiah, when they went back, there were some people that were living that never left and were never deported, but there were some people that were Jews, at least by birth, that were still living in the land, but never got deported for whatever reason. And you remember that the Bible says that when Nehemiah and the crew that was back there trying to rebuild the wall, the people that lived there and remained there didn't like it. They hassled them and made trouble. Well, that group of people were the great-great-great-grand-descendants, or ascendants, or whatever it works out to be, uh, of what became the Samaritans. Well, they resented the fact that they uh, weren't allowed to be part of the rebuilding of the temple for one big reason that was a big no-no in the Jewish law, and that was to intermarry outside of your Jewish faith. Well, those who had remained down there throughout the years, they had remarried with other nations and people. And, uh, and so when Nehemiah and Ezra went back to start the rebuilding of the project, rebuilding of the wall there in Jerusalem, they did not allow them to participate because of their intermarriage, because they were violators of the law. Well, that created a lot of resentment. And that resentment was passed down through the years of this hatred that eventually this group became identified with Samaria, and this group basically said through the years, and I'm fast-forwarding, said, well, hey, if you won't let us worship in your temple at Jerusalem, guess what? We'll go up to Mount Gerizim, and we'll build our own temple, and we'll get our own priests. Well, guess what? That was a false temple, a false religion, and they set up a complete alternative way to worship God according to their own uh, way of understanding but what happened over time is this group of people began to be identified racially, ethnically as Samaritans, and there was great animosity through the years to the Jews. They were a mixture of Jews, but they had a mixture of intermarriage from outside nations. And so through the years, this created a lot of hatred and animosity between the two, the two groups. You with me? All right. So these Jews and Samaritans, so this idea when it says that, um, that Jesus had to go through Samaria, you know, it's interesting because um, now the quickest way to Galilee was to go through Samaria. But because of the hatred and animosity of the Jews and Samaritans, the Jews would go the long way around to avoid going through Samaria because they, couldn't, they hated them. Kind of like some of you that are uh, University of Florida fans, you hold your nose when you drive through uh, Gainesville, right? Because you're Florida State folks, and it works the other way too, right? So, uh, now maybe not that bad, but anyway. But there was great animosity, and they would take, instead of a two-day trip, two-and-a-half-day trip, they would go four-and-a-half days just so they wouldn't have to go through those Samaritans. So think about this. The Son of God, it says he had to go through Samaria. Now, there's another thing going on here. When it says he had to go through Samaria, and on your listener's guide, the blue sheet that's in your bulletin, I hope you make use of that. Be an engaged listener. You'll certainly get more out of the message. But there's a place you could write this down also is that Jesus 
was on God's appointed schedule. Guess what? The Son of God had a divine appointment in Samaria before time was ever time. Guess what? He knew that there was a woman in Samaria that was going to be at the well that was going to come to faith in Christ, and he had a divine appointment that was put in the divine Franklin Daytimer before time, and he had to pass through Samaria. I don't know about you, but I'm glad he had to pass through my life that I was on that divine schedule. Amen? And so that gives you a little insight into a verse you might just read past, but it's pregnant with a lot of information there, and hopefully you have a greater appreciation about that significance of what's going on there. He had to pass through Samaria. So let's pick it up at verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus in his humanity was wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. John's probably using Roman time, so that would put it about six o'clock in the evening, okay, about the time. So a long day of ministry, remember where he had been coming from, walking, right, uh, hot, dry, in his humanity, Jesus was tired, he was thirsty, Jesus got hungry, and so we see that little insight there. Now, in this, in this encounter between Jesus and this woman that's going to come on the scene now in verse 7, I want us to notice four appeals, and in your listener's guide, there's going to be some things on the screen to be clearly to follow, but if you engage yourself, you certainly will get more understanding about the Word of God. Listen, you've invested the time to come here. I've done the work for you, right? You want to study the Bible? Guess what? This counts, all right? We're studying the Bible, all right? So be an engaged listener. It'll be easy to follow, but you know what? If you discipline yourself to be engaged, I assure you, you will get more out of the Word of God this morning than if you just sit there and daydream about beating the Lutherans to Golden Corral. See, this week we're picking on the Lutherans. Last week we picked on the Presbyterians, all right? So be engaged in the Word of God, all right? I'm just kidding. We're a non-denominational offender here, so uh, we just work with everybody here. But I want you to notice four appeals. And again, what are we talking about? We're talking about how to communicate the good news, how to communicate the good news. And we see some examples in how Jesus dialogued with this woman. The first thing I want you to notice is four appeals in this conversation. And Jesus, number one, appeals to her heart. Jesus appeals to her heart. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water at this well, and Jesus said to her, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. He's hot, he's tired, he's thirsty, and he says to her, give me a drink. Now I'm going to unpack that in a little bit. Before I do, let me just throw something else out here. Even though there's a big four in your Bible that tells you this is chapter four, uh, you realize that isn't the way the Apostle John or any of the Bibles wrote. They didn't put chapter numbers and little numbers for verses. That was done uh, many years later for publishing, and it's a helpful way. But just remember the flow of this story. This really begins, what John is trying to communicate, this begins in John 3, and this is a continuation from John 3 that we come to John 4. Now, what are you talking about, Pastor? Let me, let me tell you this. Think of the contrast between the main character in John 3 and the main character in, verse, in chapter 4 between this man, Nicodemus, in John 3 and this woman that we do not know her name in chapter 4. In chapter 3, we have Jesus witnessing to a man. Chapter 4, he's witnessing to a woman. In chapter 3, he's witnessing to a Jew. In chapter 4, he's witnessing to a Samaritan. In John chapter 3, he uses the example of a man who in that culture as a Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin, is representative of the highest moral authority in the culture. And in John chapter 4, he takes that what is seen in the culture, a woman that has a bad 
reputation. What is he doing here? I think what's being done here is Jesus, through the Apostle John writing here, is showing that this gospel, this good news, is for the one who thinks they're the highest morally ethical person in the world to the person who's the lowest of the low. The gospel is a necessity to the whole world here. All right? So don't miss that. That's free. I won't charge you extra for that this morning. But look back at verse 9. The Samaritan woman, when Jesus asked this question, nobody's more surprised than this woman. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, make sure you pay attention to the commas, how is it that you, a Jew, comma, ask for a drink from me, comma, a woman of Samaria? Not just a Samaritan, but a woman of Samaria. I mean, Jews... Some of the Jews, I shouldn't say all of them, but in the, in the culture, they didn't talk to Samaritans, let alone talk to a woman who was a Samaritan. And Jesus being a rabbi and as a teacher and obedient to the law, I mean, he's really taking a risk in the sense of, uh, of how people might perceive in him dialoguing with a woman that the Jews historically have had this racial animosity, this historical ethnic animosity. And Jesus says to her, remember what he's doing, he's appealing to her heart. He's trying to build a bridge here. He's trying to build a relationship. And listen, most people, when you ask them to help meet a need in your life, it, most people will generally respond. Not everybody. Some people are just like, I don't care. It's not my fault you're thirsty, but you know, those are rare birds. But what does he do? What's he trying to do? He's trying because there already is all these barriers, right? But what is he trying to do? He's trying to build a relational bridge to her heart. He didn't say, why don't I give you a drink? No, he says, would you give me a drink? He's restoring. Remember the history lesson I gave you. What is Jesus wanting to do through that one action of appealing to her heart? He's trying to restore that which is broken down. He's trying to make a connection here. He's offering and saying for help to a genuine need in his life, will you give me a drink? And he's trying to take and makes the, make this relational bridge. You know what he's doing here? Here's a principle that's important here. He's, trying, he's reopening channels of communication. He's switching the channel. If there's somebody in your life that you have not communicated with, that there is, for whatever reason, animosity and, and distrust and misunderstanding, guess what? Somebody's got to flip the channel. Somebody's got to change the channel, and you as a mature believer in Jesus need to do that. Jesus decides to switch the channel, and Jesus, what is he doing? He's drawing her out relationally, appealing to her heart by saying something very simple of a need in his life. I'm thirsty, will you give me a drink. So he appeals to her heart, opens the channel relationally, but he's going somewhere. Notice, secondly, Jesus appeals to her mind. Okay? Jesus appeals to her mind. He's got her attention, he's got her talking. He appeals to her curiosity, he starts with some empathy, and now he moves to curiosity. And the Samaritan woman, verse 9, says, How is it that you, a Jew, are asking me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? Verse 10. Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is say, that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now look at several things that are going on here. This is really fascinating. He says some things that, Again, this is all to help us in communicating. The first thing, he, uh, the phrase is, I want to give you living water. He's talking to a thirsty woman here about living water. And he's talking about what he's going to lead about her real need in her life. And here's the principle, and this is a place in your outline, you can write this in the blank there, that when we talk to somebody about the gospel, when we're communicating the good news, move from the known to the unknown. Move from the felt need to the real need. You see, a lot of times people say, 
Well, my life is a mess. If I could just have another, a different wife, I could just have a better car, if I just have a better job, if I just would have a better church, I mean, whatever it is. That's not your problem. That's not your real need. And people on the outside think that if we just can do this or do that, but the real need, and Jesus is moving towards putting his finger on the real need in her life, but how does he start? We're talking about communication. He's starting, from, he's starting with the known, and he's leading her to the unknown. He's starting with natural water as an object lesson, and he's taking her to the living water. He's starting with what her felt need. She's thirsty. She's probably got to go and get water for her husband and, and families and maybe some other people, whatever. But he, Jesus is going to drive it to the real need in her life. People think that they need a lot of stuff. They need a lot of this. They need a lot of that. But Jesus uses the picture of living water, just like he used the picture of being born again with Nicodemus. He's going from the known to the unknown. He's going from the felt need to the real need. But notice also something else Jesus does here, and it's something we need to do in communicating the gospel, is help people start asking questions. Help people to start asking questions. Verse 11 and 12, the woman said to him, again, think of how she's thinking in the natural, like Nicodemus. How can I, how can I be born again? I mean, do I have to enter my mother's womb a second? I mean, remember Nicodemus? Look at where he's talking about living water, and she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Where do you get that living water? She's starting to ask questions, and some of the things that she begins to engage with, she's, she's got, he's got her curiosity, and, uh, and, and so she's asking some questions of him. Now, I'll be honest with you, some of the fears we have in talking to people about Christ is we don't want them to ask questions. Why? Because they're going to ask something you don't know the answer to. Right? Where did Cain get his wife? You know? Well, it's easy, from his mother-in-law, all right? So, um, some of you, that'll just hang out there the whole service. It's back in the maps. Look it up. All right. Um, and you know what I found? People don't want you to snow them. It's okay to say, I mean, I'm a pastor. I don't say it much. I've got a master's degree. Don't be impressed by that. Still paying that thing off, all right? Yeah, right. I'll be, my grandchildren will be paying for that degree. All right, let's don't go there. All right. Now, Sue, you got me distracted. You mentioned Biden's name, and that threw me off there. All right. I'd be really thrown off if you mentioned Trump. But anyway, all right. Hey, I'm an umpire. Pastors are umpires. We call strikes and fouls, all right? So um, sometimes people ask questions, and, you know, sometimes those questions are really not what they're interested in. And it's okay to say, you heard it here, I don't know. I don't know. But if you're really interested, I will find out. I'll call my pastor. He knows everything. And uh, some of you or under the illusion of that. I'm a dial of concordance. Where is that verse? Uh, but it's okay because people want you to be honest. Say, I don't know. I'm still learning. Use it to your advantage. Say, you know what? I'm still learning and growing. I've been a Christian X amount of years. And guess what? Uh, there's so much I don't know. There's so much I'm still wanting to learn. And I, I would love to find, that's something I'm really interested in, Right? That's something I want to know about, and I will find out if you're really interested, if you're really interested. But notice the third thing that's going on here, and this is kind of ties in this, is thirdly, in this, uh, Jesus refuses to be drawn into an argument. You say, well, where's that? Notice what she says. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Now, that may not seem to be a big deal. But the fact that this Samaritan said, our father Jacob, that was fighting words to the Jews. Because remember, they did not consider the Samaritans legitimate. 
And she has the audacity to call one of the patriarchs, Jacob, your father? I mean, that right there would have started a barroom brawl, all right? That was a big point of argument. But notice, Jesus doesn't get sucked into the argument. And sometimes when we're communicating to people, they want to throw out something that's irrelevant to the conversation, you know, and ask you some irrelevant issue or bring up politics or bring up this or bring up that. And you've got to be careful to make sure you're keeping the conversation on target. Listen, talking about them asking questions they want to know. Well, you know, did our, our extraterrestrials in the Bible, did Jesus come down from a spaceship? I mean, I'll, they'll ask you the weirdest stuff. And you get sucked into it, and you don't even remember what you're there to talk about. Right? Jesus stayed on track. He didn't get drawn into this argument about their father. Arguing only distracts from the real issue of the heart, and don't let it be a detour. But notice in this third appeal, he's appealing to her heart, her mind, but now it's getting a little, things are drawing close. Thirdly, Jesus appeals to her need, to her real need. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the well water, will be thirsty again. Remember what he's doing. He's contrasting the natural to the spiritual. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see what he's doing here? He's going from the known now to the unknown. Whoever drinks of this water, in other words, if you're constantly looking to be satisfied with the things of this life, guess what? You'll always want more. John D. Rockefeller, the granddaddy Rockefeller that founded Standard Oil that was one of the, I mean, a, a triple billionaire back in the day and the whole Rockefeller empire and family, uh, was asked the question, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money does it take to satisfy a man? And you know what he said? Just a little bit more. That's the way your life is. But Jesus says, you drink from this well, you're going to be thirsty again and again and again. But the water that I give you will satisfy you. You drink from this water, and the water that I will give him will become in him, in her, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Look at some things here. He says, never thirst. I kind of got onto that. It tells us this living water flows, and the word you can put in there, constantly. This is a constant source of life. There's nothing in this life that is as constant and as reliable as the life-giving source of life that Jesus brings. Secondly, he says this is a spring of water, a wellspring of water. That means it flows freshly, fresh water. You ever smelled a stagnant pond? We've got some of those around here in Florida. In a summer hot, and you, that smell, oh, that's a, that's a horrible smell. You know, standing water that has no flow to it versus a well-flowing stream of a lake or river or water. The water that Jesus brings is always fresh. And see, religion... And law-keeping, guess what? That brings stagnation in your life. You see, when you've equated serving God to just keeping the rules, making sure you outweigh one side of the ledger versus the other, and religion, it just becomes that drudgery and that, that, that obligatory thing of what i got to do. There's no life in that. There's no life. There's no joy in that. It, it, it's not fresh. And then he also says this water become, becomes in him. That's welling up. That's the work of this Holy Spirit. And then fourthly, he says this eternal life, not only is it internally, but number four, it's, it's eternal. This isn't just a, a one-time thing. Remember he introduced eternal life in John 3.16? That whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have what? 
eternal life. This isn't just a one-time thing. This is eternal life. It flows eternally. It flows constantly, freshly, internally, and eternally. Someone said this about eternal life. Said eternal life, listen to this. I don't have it on the screen. It, eternal life it is not, eternal life is not an endless duration of being in time, but eternal life is, is being of which time is not a measure. You're like, what does that mean? <laughs> time is not a measure. We measure time. We're, we're living in the chronos of life. It is, I'm not going to tell you what time it is, because then you'll be, checking me. No, it's 11.05. It'll be 11.06. And that's Kronos. It's Sunday. Tomorrow's Monday. We're, we're, li- we're linear. You know, we're living in that Kairos isn't so much that linear tick of the clock. Kairos is the season of time. Meaning that time, remember the Bible in, uh, was it first or second Peter? It says a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. I don't think that's like some little uh, end times rule keeping thing. I think it just means that in eternity, God is not, me- there's nothing that is measured by time. Because you think, boy, I'm just going to be there forever. Forever is a time frame, it has a beginning, and somehow forever has an ever, ever. But eternal life the, with the Lord? So we're not measuring time in eternal life. All right, that gives you something to talk about at Christmas dinner. All right. Notice the woman's reply. And you know what? This is so much like us. Verse 15. (laughs) She's like, I want this water. (laughs) I mean, she didn't really know what that water is. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She doesn't know. She's like, whatever this is, you got some secret well. I want to tap in that because coming to the well to gather buckets of water... You ever carried a, 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 you know, a bucket of water? Imagine a couple of those, and you've seen pictures of different people on their backs or whatever, and to go several times a day, and, and that, that's how they had to get their water. She says, look, if you've got some secret well or some supply, but what is she doing? She's still thinking in the natural. She's missing the point, kind of like Nicodemus. He wasn't, he wasn't tracking. And so the next phrase might surprise you of where Jesus goes, but it leads into the next thing that we'll look at in just a minute. And this may shock you. I mean, listen, I mean, I, I, the disciples, remember, they're not there. They went off to get lunch. They're not around, just Jesus and this woman. And you would think that, Jesus, man, you, you've got her. Come on, just, just keep going, keep drawing her in. And Jesus says something that really is kind of shocking on face value. Verse 16, she said, look, I want this water. Okay, all you got to do is come forward, kneel down, repeat after me. He didn't say that. He says, go call your husband. Go call your husband. And you come back, you come here. Now, this is, this is not something I came up with, something I read from one of the studies that I use, and I thought it was a fascinating point. Uh, in the Greek... If you count the number in this dialogue, if you count the number of replies this woman gives, up to this point, she's pretty chatty. She's pretty talkative. For example, in verse 9, in the Greek, they do the study, uh, she replies to Jesus with 11 words in the Greek. In verse 15, 13 words. In verse 11 and 12, 42 words. And you come to her response in verse 17, And she says, I have no husband in the Greek. She just uses three words. And this leads us to the fourth appeal that Jesus makes in our study this morning. Fourthly, notice, Jesus appeals to her sin. The guilt of her sin. You see, in this dialogue, all of a sudden, when Jesus begins to hone in on what her real need is, all of a sudden, she gets, she gets quiet. She's been real talkative up to this point, but now she gets quiet. You see, the guilt of sin 
has a power of silence. And see, when we talk, one of the things that we have to be true to is talking about what the Bible says that we have a separation from our Creator. It isn't just having your best Friday. Every day is a Friday. That, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about this separation, and the separation that we have between ourselves and our Creator is sin. And the conviction that of sin is not something that we are necessarily called to make. You remember what Jesus said in John 16, 8? Later on, we'll look at this. Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes in John 16, 8, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, when you are engaged in a Holy Spirit filled conversation and the Holy Spirit is your partner in that conversation and you begin to move and lean into what the real need of a person's life is and you begin to and the Holy Spirit begins to address through your words the sin and the obstacle that's hindering them do not be surprised if the Holy Spirit brings conviction in that person's life and all of a sudden now they get a little quiet because the guilt of sin is real. And see, this is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus says in Luke 5.32, I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. That's the ministry of what Jesus is doing here. And so in verse 16 of John 4, Jesus says, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you are right in saying I have no husband. Verse 18, for you have had, had five husbands. And the one you now have, the one you're shacking up with, playing house with, is not your husband. So what you said is true when you say you have no husband. It's interesting how if we said what's wrong with our lives, we'd talk on and on. And Jesus, in the succinctness of his words and spirit, in just a matter of a few words, puts his finger on the very issue of a person's life. Everything that she's seeking, the relationships in her life, Jesus says, look, I don't know, this is old song and old movie day. The old song, looking for love in all the wrong places. And she, after five husbands and one guy she shacked up with, not going to do it. It's not going to do it. Jesus says, I have, I have the real answer to the need in your life. You drink of what I give you. You'll never thirst again. Notice her response. I love the way that this kind of unfolds here. The first response in your outline, she says, let's talk religion. You know, Jesus, since you're talking about my personal life, I really wanted to ask you about your views of the pre-tribulational rapture. She doesn't ask. I'm just, come on, people. Work with me. Work with me. He's put his finger on the sin of her her life. And what does she want to do? She wants to go off and talk about religion and something that has nothing to do with the issue that Jesus is bearing down on. You know, while we're talking about my sin, hey, you know, I have some religious questions. Verse 19. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You know, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you say that in Jerusalem... That's the place where people ought to worship. Remember the history I gave you? They had an alternative place, all that. Our fathers, our Samaritan fathers. That's a big argument. What do we do when our sin is being confronted? We have a tendency to want to get real religious, don't we? Instead of allowing Jesus to bring the living water in our life, what do we want to do? You know what? I I need to get back in church. And that's not a bad thing. 
But I need to get back in church. I need to start doing this. I need to, you know, cut out this. I need to turn, I need to cancel Netflix. I need to, whatever it is. And that's good for about a few days. And guess what? Well, you know that Netflix, you know, there's some good things. I heard The Chosen is on there now, so maybe I'll get... And I'm not knocking Netflix, don't go there, okay? I'm just saying, what do we want to do? We want to, start, we want to start implementing the law of behavior modification, right? And styling, instead of allowing the spirit of transformation to occur. She wants to talk religion. Religion and this conversation, what is it? It's a big distraction, We have an uncanny way that when we are uncomfortable, we can distract and get off the subject. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is bearing down in her heart in dealing with the sin, the real need of her life, and she wants to find a quick way to divert and get out of that. And I love that Jesus responds. He doesn't ignore her question. He doesn't ignore her. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't twist the truth, verse 22. He tells her the truth. Verse 22, you Samaritans, or you, you worship what you do not know, but we, we Jews, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He's being honest with her. You have a false religion, you Samaritans. He said, but we Jews, the truth has come through this line of, of Judah, He tells her the truth. He's not twisting it to gain her sympathy. He answers her question in a way, verse 21, that points her back to her need. He says, woman, believe me. And he's not being disrespectful by saying woman. Remember in the the wedding at Cana, he addresses his mother. Woman. Uh, Again, we talked about the culturalism of what that meant. It's not disrespectful. Men, you may not want to reenact that cultural thing, but I'm just saying that it was that back in that day. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. There's that word believe. What's the theme of John? That you would believe. That you would believe. Every time you come across believe in the gospel of John, you ought to mark it. Woman, believe me. The hour, see where he's going? The hour is coming when neither on Mount Gerizim or Mount Sinai, or in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father? He doesn't ignore her argument, but he says in verse 23, he said, but the hour is coming. In fact, it's now here. When the true worshipers, notice, if there's true worshipers, that means parent, on an alternative, there must be false worshipers. When the true worshipers, she wants to engage, she wants to engage a conversation about true worship. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in what? Truth. Can't, can't separate it. For the Father, you want to be a seeker-friendly church? Well, be a seeker-friendly church that's providing the people. The Father, he's the seeker. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And her second response is, verse 25, why don't we we wait and talk to the Messiah when He comes? What does she say in verse 25? She says, I know that Messiah, Samaritans believed in a Messiah, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. So she goes from let's talk about religion to let's talk, why don't we talk later? You know, I mean, look, you know, i got to get this water out of here, let's talk later. You know, procrastination is one of the most devious weapons the enemy uses when you're having a spiritual conversation with somebody. In the book of Acts, in... uh, I was looking at it again this morning. Acts 24, Paul is bearing his testimony before Felix. And he gets a little too close for comfort. And Felix says, well, okay, let's stop right there. Why don't, we, why don't I hear you another day? He, he, he never responds to faith in Christ. Later on in Acts 26, Paul is speaking and giving his testimony for King Agrippa. 
And King Agrippa says, hold on, Paul. You almost persuaded me. She says, why don't we talk later? Why don't we wait till the Messiah comes? You see, the woman, the Holy Spirit's working in this woman's life. Look at verse 27. Just then, boy, what impeccable timing. Actually, don't miss verse 26. Is verse 26 up there? Sorry. I don't know if I have verse 26 up there. But what does Jesus say in verse 26? You have your Bibles. He says, you're looking at him. She says, when the Messiah comes... He'll tell us all things. And Jesus says, verse 26, you're looking at him. I am that man. And just then, here come the boys from Zaxby's. All right, who had the Zack Pack? Who had the grill? I mean, they're lollygagging in from lunch. Just then. Just then, his disciples came back. And what did they do? They marveled. That's a nice way to say it. That he was talking with a woman. Not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? They just, you know, can you imagine those looks they gave each other? And so the woman, look at what she did. Verse 28. She left Her water jar. Boy, that's significant, isn't it? That's not her need anymore. She has encountered and gotten the living water. She left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the third response, she goes from religion. Let's talk later. The thirdly, she tells someone else. She says, Come and see. And then she says it kind of as a, as a matter of letting them kind of check it out themselves. She said, can this be the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Verse 30, they, those Samaritans, went out of the town because of this woman, and they were coming to him. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town Believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. Who said, he told me all that I ever did. Verse 42, and they said to the woman, these Samaritans are friends. It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Now, don't miss this little bit I skipped over in talking where the disciples come in. Jesus said back in verse 34 to his disciples. Remember they, they, uh, they brought him lunch. And Jesus basically is saying, guys, I don't, we don't got time to eat. We'll eat later. And they said, remember they're asking, like, did he have food we didn't know about? Is he packing a little Happy Meal? In the, you know, I mean, what, what's, where did he get this food? Because, again, those disciples, they were sometimes not spiritually thinking. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Something very satisfying in what happened there with Jesus. And he says this, interesting. He said, do not say... There are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Maybe they're looking around at all the harvest fields that are, that are yet not quite there. But, but he says, look, look at this situation. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields that are white for harvest. And just think of the picture there. As he says this, the people from Sychar are streaming through the fields coming to him. Jesus is saying, boys, there's your harvest. And then he says, then he says, I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored. The woman, 
not you guys that think you know more than everybody. This woman, this Samaritan woman, she's the one that labored. And guess what? You get to enter in on her, on her harvest. Guys, we'll eat later. There's harvesting that's on its way. What a great story. What a great picture of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus made four appeals to this Samaritan woman. He appealed to her heart to connect relationally. Her mind to engage the mind to move from the known to the unknown. Connected with her need. Her real spiritual need. Nothing satisfies like Jesus. And sin. Sin. That's the real issue. If you give me just a few minutes, I want to go back to one thing before we close. Back in verse 14. Back in verse 14. John 4.14. Jesus said, But whoever drinks of the water, drinking, drinking is symbolic of believing Believing in Jesus. Notice, and again, I won't bore you with this, but people much smarter than I bring this out, that in the Greek there's different tenses, and in the Greek, believing or drinking or drinks is in the aorist tense, which means it is a one-time event that has ongoing uh, repercussions. It's an ongoing, it's a one-time action. Whoever drinks, that's one time. Whoever believes, not whoever drinks and drinks and drinks. You better not quit drinking. Drinks and drinks or you're not going to be saved. Drinks. No. Whoever believes, whoever believes the living water and drinks it one time, That's what Jesus said in John 3.16. That whoever believes in Him, single action, should not perish, but have eternal life. John 5.24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes to accept, to change and acknowledge in my thinking that this is true, whoever believes Him who sent me, has eternal life. Not can accumulate or perhaps gain, but whoever believes has presently, right now, eternal life. You see, and if you have never come to that place in your life that you have believed in faith that Jesus is Savior, is Lord. It's as simple as that. To believe. To believe.